Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, who is also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and we're going to say mixed martinis today. Let's start with the good. And, Jim, it's not often that we talk about higher taxes being the good martini, and they never will be. But honesty about planning to raise taxes means that at least you know what's coming if you're dumb enough to vote for these people. Case in point, Bernie Sanders, Free Beacon. During a town hall on Tuesday, Senator Bernie Sanders told the audience his health care plan, which would create a single-payer, government-run system, would require tax increases for Americans. Sanders was asked about how he would pay for his Medicare for All plan, which the Mercatus Center from George Mason University found would cost the federal government $32.6 trillion during the first 10 years of its implementation. One area Sanders suggested he would look to raise taxes on is an increase in payroll taxes paid by employers. Most employers are already required to pay taxes on an employee's earnings, including those for Social Security and Medicare. He additionally added that he would fund his government-run health care program by, quote, an increase in income taxes in a progressive way for ordinary people, unquote. So... Jim, we hate the idea of government-run health care. We hate the idea of more government intrusion into our lives. We hate the idea of higher taxes. But at least Bernie Sanders is warning people that this is what's going to happen if, in fact, he's elected president. And that's good because it reminds me of the last guy who promised he would raise my taxes in 1984. His name was Walter Mondale, and this was part of his convention acceptance speech. Mr. Reagan will raise taxes. And so will I. He won't tell you. I just did. And the Democrats love that. So, uh, Jim, he got barely one state in 1984. So go for it, Bernie Sanders. That was during his acceptance speech, the 1984 Democratic National Convention. Greg, do you notice what he said? Mr. Reagan will raise taxes and so will I. If that was an applause line, <laughs> it did not generate any applause. Even amongst the Democrats in the hall, we're not like, I will raise your taxes. Yay! Maybe there was a smattering of applause for the honesty of all that stuff. By the way, I, you know, I, we can argue about the tax reform in 1986, but I don't think you could say, ah, well, the Reagan legacy is higher taxes. This is not surprising to anyone who's looked at the numbers or the scale or the idea of the Bernie Sanders proposal. But I was wondering if he was going to stick to the idea of he can do everything he wants and you know spend a kajillion hillion on new free health care, free college education, free daycare, uh, this, that, and the other thing. And we can do it all without raising taxes on anybody or just only raising taxes on the rich. If I'm the Trump campaign, I go up against Bernie Sanders, I beat this comment like a drum, I emphasize this, I go over and over again. And the other point to make is that you know Bernie Sanders you know, keeps saying it's not going to be raising taxes on you. Like, this has never happened before. <laughs> like, we've never seen somebody say, oh, we're going to raise taxes on the rich. And then the definition of the rich gets really broad. Um, but in the case of, you know, about payroll taxes, I mean, that's just, you know, that you, you, you pay those for working. Um, so we'll see uh, uh, if this has a huge effect. It's not going to have a huge effect in the Democratic primary, I don't think, because Democrats either support higher taxes or convince themselves that they're not going to be affected by them. They might be limousine li- liberals, so to speak. Uh, or they believe that, oh, the, the higher taxes will be on someone else. I do believe that there was some, uh, during the Obama era, people who were surprised, who, who looked at their paychecks, found them small, and said, well, wait a second. I thought the taxes were going to be on the rich people, not me, or the uh, the folks on, 
uh, who'd be paying higher taxes on Obamacare. One of those changes. I remember there was a great story about California liberals who were like, wait a second, this isn't supposed to hit me. It's supposed to hit rich people. And lo and behold, surprise, you're rich. So um, anyway, just got a good, you know, my guess is that this is not the last time Bernie Sanders will be forced to have this conversation. I think every time he has it, it his ideas become a little bit less appealing. Uh, to people who look at their tax stubs, the payroll stubs, and say, you know what, this is going to hit me at some point. And I just don't feel like giving that money to the government. No, that's exactly right. Because as Jazz Shaw points out over at Hot Air, he's talking about jacking up all these uh, payroll taxes for employers and uh, progressive income tax increases just for Medicare for all or single-payer health care, government-run health care. We're not even into student debt forgiveness or free tuition at public universities or all the other giveaways uh, that he wants to do, which are not really giveaways at all because they're on the backs of the taxpayers. Uh, and, and you bring up a good point, Jim, because remember back in 1992, Bill Clinton was actually promising a middle class tax cut in 1992. And then he got into office and said, whoa, I had no idea. Idea how terrible the books were here. We have to raise taxes on everyone, and that's how we got the Republican Revolution. So, uh, good luck, yeah, everyone. Yeah. Uh, if there were two, I also think he'd say, "Yeah, if only somebody had put actual numbers out about the deficit and the debt." It's, it's a shame that they hide them in this really obscure corner of the Treasury Department. Um, I also recall, I believe, he was running for re-election '96. Uh, he's at some fundraiser, and he said, "A lot of people say I raise your taxes too high." Not surprised you to believe it. I think I raised your taxes too high, too. And uh, much to our frustration, Bob Dole could not dunk on him uh, <laughs> over that. But, uh, yeah. So, look, you know, so the, some of us are cursed with long memories about how these about <laughs> tax policy fights and how they tend to turn out. Yeah, exactly. If only there had been a candidate on the debate stage in 1992 who spent all his time talking about the debt, maybe um, somebody else would have learned on that stage just how serious the situation was and uh may have tailored his plan accordingly ross perot was that person in case anyone wonders all right on to our bad martini now jim and uh talk about long memories let's go back to 2003 that's uh, the build-up to the iraq war and the bush administration was not getting a lot of help from the u.n security council for uh, approving military action against saddam hussein for violating u.n resolutions going back to the end of the original gulf war and among those opposed to military action were the french and they were so vociferous about it and the uh the debate got so intense that uh there was some anti-french sentiment up on capitol hill you remember the republicans ran the house cafeteria at the time and they decided that french fries were no longer on the menu it was going to be freedom fries because the french i guess didn't deserve to have french fries named after them or something like that so now fast forward 16 years and it's the republicans running the department of energy who have decided euphemisms are the way to go here's what they say Increasing export capacity from the Freeport liquid na liquefied natural gas project is critical to spreading freedom gas throughout the world by giving America's allies a diverse and affordable source of clean energy. Furthermore, exports of U.S. liquefied natural gas to the world means more U.S. jobs and more domestic economic growth and cleaner air here at home and around the globe, said U.S. Undersecretary of Energy Mark Menezes. And let's move on to the best quote of all. This is from Assistant Secretary for Fossil Energy Stephen Winberg who says that he's pleased that the Department of Energy is doing what it can to promote an efficient regulatory system that allows for molecules of U.S. freedom to be exported to the world. Jim, this is a really good policy. 
the presentation of this policy sounds really dumb. <laughs> you know, Greg, I was going to make a couple of observations. You, you forget, by the way, uh, I actually just looked this up. It was not just Freedom Fries. <laughs> French <laughs> Toast was renamed Freedom Toast. <laughs> not making this up. Um, and look, I, you know, this was done by, I believe it was, Bob Nay. For a while, I had in my head that it was Scott McGinnis, who I was covering way back when in my wire service days. But it wasn't it. Bob Nay and a couple others. Uh, lesser known aspects. Uh, he said his daughter would no longer have a French braid. Uh, it was technically a freedom braid. And uh, that he and his wife would be freedom kissing that evening. So. Little known fact. Uh, also, my colleague back then, David French, was actually David Freedom. So. <laughs> Should have kept it that way. Look. I love the fracking revolution. I love that the U.S. is now becoming a net energy exporter. I love the fact that we are becoming a natural gas and oil powerhouse, that we are, de- you know, that we are lessening the power of various hostile Middle Eastern states. We are lessening the power of, of Russia, even though Germany keeps wanting to build pipelines to them. Uh, this is a really important, maybe, maybe the single most important economic development in the United States in the last two years. Maybe you could argue the tech stuff. But this is, calling it freedom molecules is just a silly, you know, this is going to get made fun of. I, I guess if this leads to some more coverage and discussion, this issue, wonderful. But it just comes across as maybe even almost a little Orwellian or something like that. Greg, you and I are, are fond of using the phrase, we give someone a molecule of credit when it's someone who... Uh, <laughs> We're not particularly fond of does something right for a change. Then we say, okay, all right, here's a little bit of an attaboy, but we don't want to overemphasize it. But this this just kind of comes across. This is the sort of thing that like the C or D list Madison Avenue ad guys come up with. <laughs> don't think of it as a liquid natural. Think of it as freedom molecule. Come on. So, <laughs> go back to the drawing board, Department of Energy. Yeah, they're bearing the leaders. You said this is an amazing economic revolution, not in our own country, but it's a fantastic way to actually build relationships around the globe and infuse freedom. Go ahead and put that in your statement. But making the actual product molecules of freedom just diminishes the immensity of what you're doing here uh, and probably uh, damages the amount of support you're going to get for it because it just looks like a, a stunt. Yeah, again, like you, this is not an issue. Look, this is an issue where the truth is on your side. <laughs> the truth is awesome. The truth is what you don't need to spin it. <laughs> it doesn't need to be sold. It doesn't need to be, you know, hyped. This is really good news as it is. Maybe it's just instinctive with these guys. I guess so. Some people need more to do, <laughs> I guess. Hobbies. Get some hobbies, people, and just focus on the policy. But I guess, would we have actually heard about this? If, if uh, they used more boring phraseology. I wish they had, but actually maybe held a press conference to talk about that instead of something less significant. All right, let's move on to our final martini now. And this one's in the eye of the beholder. There's some good aspects here. There's some bad aspects here. Jim, let's go back in the Wayback Machine once again. Not to 1984, not to 2003. This time it's to 2016, early 2016. We've just received the horrifying news that Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia has passed away. And almost instantaneously, because there was a Republican debate that night, I believe in South Carolina, many of the candidates said there should be no nomination confirmed this year. This should be up to the next president of the United States to fill. President Obama, of course, as expected, uh, made a nomination to fill the seat. He nominated Merrick Garland from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader then and now, uh, had this to say about why Merrick Garland was not going to receive a vote or even a hearing in the U.S. Senate. 
The next justice could fundamentally alter the direction of the Supreme Court and have a profound impact on our country. So, of course, of course, the American people should have a say in the court's direction. So the seat remained vacant for over a year. It became a huge issue, I would say, and a huge factor in President Trump getting elected, having that open Supreme Court seat hanging over the general election. He came up with his list of, I think, 20 different people that he would choose from to fill the seat, which comforted a lot of conservatives who wasn't sure whether he would take his sister or Judge Judy or somebody else to to fill the seat because they just weren't too sure about Donald Trump at the time. But now, of course, we're getting close to another election year. Mitch McConnell was in Paducah, Kentucky earlier this week when somebody asked the question, what would you do if a Supreme Court justice died in 2020? The Supreme Court justice died next year. Oh, we'd fill it. There you go. The uh, explanation from Republicans and McConnell's office is that, well, back in 2016, it was a Democratic president and a Republican Senate. And so, therefore, it should have been left up to the voters in 2020. Uh, It's a Republican president and a Republican Senate. So it's not the same deal. Uh, Another argument, uh, which I haven't heard as much, but uh, I think will probably be thrown out there as well if this ever actually happens, is that Trump could actually get reelected, unlike Obama. And so that would be his choice anyway. So, Jim, obviously a lot of uh, allegations of hypocrisy being tossed around here. What do you think? So I was among those folks who believe that the Republican Senate in 2016 was not obligated to confirm Merrick Garland. you know, it's entirely possible. You look at the guy, you're like, no, I don't want to replace Scalia with this this judge. Um, we, there was a time back in the days of when Scalia was confirmed, back when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed, that you'd see confirmation votes that were in the neighborhood of like, you know, 95 to 3 or 98 to 0. There was this broad bipartisan consensus that if a nominated judge was qualified, then you didn't really matter whether their decisions were more in a strict constructionist, originalist, uh, whichever term you want to use, progressive, I guess. The ideology of the judge on the bench didn't really matter. As long as they were qualified, they should be confirmed. The president should get their judges confirmed. As long as there was no ethical issues or the person was not qualified or something like that. That died. That died, I would argue, around John Roberts. um, And certainly with Alito, that's when Democrats started attempting to filibuster. They didn't have the votes then, but basically the attitude was, we don't like the way this judge is going to decide. We're going to vote against this person. The person's perfectly qualified. They have no ethical issues. We just don't like their thinking. And that's fine. Uh, I will cite, as I mentioned in the morning jolt today, Greg, a really important legal case. Uh, goes back way back called uh, Goose versus Gander. <laughs> and, uh, the, the Supreme Court ruled nine nothing that what's good for the goose is indeed good for the gander. So, all right, if you guys aren't going to vote for our judges, we're not going to vote for your judges. And that's you know, based on ideology, based on we don't think this judge is going to make decisions that we like. And the precedent was established. Uh, you saw it come up in the uh, Sotomayor and, and uh, Elena Kagan confirmation here. Fine. Okay. So, you know, I think Merrick Garland should have gotten a hearing. It should it would have been good to, you know, let's have the hearing, let's ask the, answer the questions, and then the, you know, Republicans controlled the Senate. They could vote down the, uh, the the nomination of Merrick Garland. And then if Obama nominated somebody else, they could do the exact same, pro- do the process as many times as possible, hoping that a Republican would end up uh, winning the presidency. They didn't do that. I, I kind of wish they had. I'm not surprised McConnell is doing this. Um, I think, you know, McConnell basically, he gets up every morning and thinks, how many judges can I get on the bench today? This is, this is you know, what he's here to do. This is going to be the Mitch McConnell legacy, that and <clears throat> cocaine. And uh, <laughs> the, the question will then be, so he's going to get accusations. Of, what, what I'm interested by was, was this question. I guess it was, okay, it's a reporter. It's engaging in a hypothetical. But uh, 
I was wondering, you know, when I first heard, you know, McConnell had made this statement, anybody checked on RBG lately? <laughs> Is anybody expecting a uh, sudden vacancy on the court? You figure if any of the justices were thinking about retiring, they probably would do it this year. Uh, instead of next year, understanding that, you know, the, the kind of intense uh, battle that would occur over every confirmation vote, Trump has gotten to replace Kennedy, who was seen as a swing vote, although it's kind of interesting that for a long time he was considered part of the rightward block. And then he got to replace uh, Scalia with, uh, with Garland. Gorsuch. Thank you. But Gorsuch was like a rallying cry for so long. How did I possibly forget that, Greg? <laughs> but anyway, so two good justices. This one, first of all, I think if he nominates three, Trump would be the first president to do that since Reagan, I think. So that would be obviously a outsized legacy of the Trump presidency, even if he didn't win a second term. But also, look, lots of people figure that RBG could be the next one to no longer be on the court. Uh, and this would be the replacement of a left of center judge, for lack of a better term, with a likely right of center judge. And this would be judicial confirmation Armageddon. This would be Ragnarok. This would be all the, mar- you know, uh, you know, the gift people have of Elmo staring towards the sky as there's a giant fireball behind them. That's what it would be like. Um, and so I, my figuring is, is that most you know justices who are on the court plan on sticking around on the court. But in that scenario, as long as Republicans have a majority in the Senate, I think confirmation is more likely than not likely, uh, whether they're accusation of hypocrisy or not. You want to change that, Democrats? Win more seats in the Senate. I'm not expecting any retirements uh, at the end of this session here in the next month or so. It's obvious that no liberal that still has a pulse is going to leave the court while Trump is still president. And uh, I don't get the sense that anybody on the right is as well. Uh, Clarence Thomas was pretty fiery in his uh, writings on the Indiana abortion case this week. So it sounds like he's still uh, spoiling for some some, uh, fierce legal battles on that and other issues coming up. So we will see. But uh, Jim... Another crazy day. We will do it again tomorrow. Talk to you. Actually, no, you are off tomorrow on uh, a special trip. No cool espionage related (laughs) stuff for this. It's not related to the book. No, I just I volunteered to uh, chaperone a field trip of sixth graders to Gettysburg uh, Battlefield tomorrow. So that'll be a heck of a lot of fun. Last time I did this, we went to the Jamestown settlement in Virginia and only three kids vomited. We we on, on the bus. We we went with like 110 students, so we came back with 110 students. Uh, Greg, I'm not sure it was the same 110 students we left with, but you know the important thing is the head count, and uh, we didn't lose any kids as far as I can tell. We may have traded a few, uh, but it worked out okay. Looking forward to it. So you'll have somebody sitting in for me tomorrow. Excellent. Will indeed. Alexander DeSanctis will be here tomorrow. Uh, hopefully, you guys get to reenact something. That's always fun. <laughs> It already says uh, in the, in the prep, you know, preparation materials for chaperones, children cannot buy weapons or facsimile weapons at the gift shop. It's going to be pretty hard to redo Pickett's Charge if that's the case, but uh, you're creative. You'll come up with something. Jim, see you on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today, and be sure to tune in again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.